This is Brand and New from the International Trademark Association. This podcast series explores changes and dynamics in the legal world, now and tomorrow, with a focus on intellectual property. I am Rodove. Welcome to Brand and New. While the digital age has unleashed a huge potential for positive and beneficial opportunities, there are also more controversial and even unlawful innovations. With hidden data breaches, dark web criminality, chatbots, trolls, or deepfake impersonations, high technology provides anyone, literally anyone, with many easily accessible effective tools to serve any malicious agenda they may have. In this episode, you will learn more about deepfakes chatbots, and of course the dark web, this unindexed and anonymous part of the internet not accessible via standard browsers or search engines. The dark web has built a solid reputation for being an ideal forum for cyber criminals, offering them anonymity and a global platform to plan and launch cyber attacks, or more generally carry out illegal activities. Our guest, Andrew J. Grotto, was the senior director for cybersecurity policy at the White House in both the Obama and Trump administrations. He participated in shaping President Obama's cybersecurity national action plan and in driving its implementation. He was also the principal architect of President Trump's cybersecurity executive order called Strengthening the Cybersecurity of Federal Networks and Critical Infrastructure. His portfolio spanned a wide range of cyber policy issues, and he also coordinated development and execution of technology policy topics with an access to cyber policy, such as encryption, privacy, and the national security dimensions of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Andy is today a William J. Perry International Security Fellow at the Cyber Policy Center and a Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, both at Stanford University in California, USA. Focusing on the national security and information technology innovation, no doubt his vision on the internet as a global minefield shall be of great interest. Andy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Internet, whether dark, deep or clear, creates critical risks that customer information be stolen, sold, and used for unlawful purposes. And while we are occasionally aware of breaches affecting our own personal data, most of the leaks and attacks happening online remain confidential or worse, undetected. Are companies taking these risks as seriously as they should? And are the solutions mostly technical or technological? More security measures and protocols? Or can legal solutions be helpful too? So the, the, the short answer is that it varies widely. There are some um, sectors of the economy where, on average, the, the businesses in those sectors take security more seriously. Um, but even in those cases, there's still considerable variation. So one example is the financial services industry. I think among sectors um, is probably the most advanced in its uh, approach to managing these risks. But of course, there are still weak links. There are uh, banks and other financial institutions out there that that get breached. In some cases, because they their security is bad. Uh, in other cases, it's you know cyber defense is hard. You know the adversary just needs to succeed once in getting in in order to compromise a system, whereas the defender has to be successful in defense every time. That's not the fairest fight. And then you know if you start to sort of you know 
fan out and look at other sectors, my, my, my confidence in their ability to manage these risks starts to go, to go down pretty fast. Uh, partly because it's expensive. It requires, in the first instance, the senior most management of a company to recognize these risks and invest their management capital in, in, in trying to manage them the same way that they, you know, manage risks associated with financing, with reputation, you know, other, other sort of core business factors. One, one development in the last few years that has had, I think, an impact uh, on overall levels of management conscientiousness about security is the general data privacy or the general data protection regulation in Europe, GDPR, sure. you know, has uh, requirements in it for, uh, for data breach. One, one important point to make, though, is that while obviously consumer data that, that is leaked it, you know, poses a, a real threat to uh, the consumers who've had the private information lost to the to the dark web, web and elsewhere. That's only part of the the cybersecurity threat landscape. You know, there are all sorts of systems that uh, don't involve personal data, but that um, hacking them could still um, cause uh, significant and even catastrophic harm. So, for example, the systems that control how electricity is distributed. Their computers, and you know, a hack of those systems doesn't necessarily involve personal information. It involves essentially machine-to-machine communication, but could have huge impact on the health and safety of of our societies. The problems are mostly behavioral, which is to say, uh, economic, and you know, it comes back to this this notion that the incentives that or not that the different actors in the cyber ecosystem have to take security seriously or not aligned with where I think um, the optimal level of security needs to be. So it's, all, so it's behavioral. And then some of that may be uh, changes in law that, um, that, that change how the different actors um, look at their responsibilities. Technology is important, but technology without the right incentives won't get adopted. And even if technology is adopted, unless the senior most management in an organization commits to managing risk, there is this, this other risk that the technology almost becomes a, um, a fetish, you know, and, and it sort of feeds this, this assumption that, well, we have the latest, greatest technology. That's all we need to do. When in fact, the, you know, again, the, these are behavioral problems. You know, require sort of an active level of management engagement to make sure that uh, within an organization that cybersecurity is rewarded, right? That your boards and CEOs are uh, kept apprised of their organization's risk posture and making decisions about it that are informed by um, all the other business factors that uh, management should be should be thinking about when running a business. Uh, talking about the aptly named dark web, what are the main risks for businesses and their intellectual property assets? Is it possible to develop, implement, and monitor effective IP protection strategies on the dark web, maybe with new ad hoc responses, or are such efforts worthless or even counterproductive? So there, there are a lot of different tools out there, companies uh, that you know, monitor the dark web for signs of breaches. And, you know, some of them are, are hired by companies specifically to look for copyrighted material or other IP that, you know, that, that shouldn't be out. Others look for credit card information. You know, it's, it's sort of an intelligence, you know, collection um, function. So there's other companies out to do that and they're, they're pretty good at it. You know, if, if as a business you discover that your IP or 
you know, your, your customer's data is on the dark web. I mean, you've already, you know, you've already, you're already kind of in trouble, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's better than not to know that, that you've been compromised, but the fact is the compromise has happened and now you're sort of in, you know, cleanup mode, which I think highlights, you know, another um, important dimension of, of cyber risk management, which is there's, there's this old saying that, you know, in, in, in cybersecurity and information security circles that, you know, there, there are two kinds of companies, companies that have been hacked and companies that know they've been hacked, which is to say that at some point, the odds are pretty good that a, a business with valuable information is going to, so bad guys going to try to try to get in. You know, in, in those cases, I mean, you know, companies need to think about what resilience looks like. So, you know, if, if a company discovers that their IP or um, their customer's personal data is, you know, on the dark web, they should have a plan in place in advance for how they respond, how they protect their, um, their brand, their reputation, you know, have a, have a vision for what message and action they take vis-a-vis their customers, uh, vis-a-vis their regulators, if, if, the, if they're a regulated industry, and not wait until the bad news that the data is out there to, to have that plan. Do you have tips maybe for our listeners? There's two, two things. One is that th- this is not a problem that you want to leave just to your information security team, right? This is not a job that uh, should be left just to the chief information security officer and the chief information officer. Uh, this needs to be handled at a strategic management level because it, it intersects with, with all the other risks that boards and CEOs have to have to optimize against. So that's the first point. And then the second point is don't wait until you've been hacked to develop a response. I, I'm a big I'm a big supporter, a strong supporter of of, of scenario exercises where you, know, you get decision makers in a room and present them with a realistic contingency and uh, put them in the position of trying to work through it in, in a you know in a non in a safe and controlled environment, but to give them a sense of if we're hacked, this is what we do. Um, here's where there are seams in our current uh, response. That that ought to then point to um, both you know where some some additional um, organizational reform may be necessary, but it also gets gets leadership some experience thinking through how to respond to a risk like this. If if, if senior management's engaged and senior management engages in a, in, in a real concerted effort to sort to practice responding to incidents, that, that goes a long way towards preparing the organization for, for an incident and, and, and hopefully um, putting them in a position to prevent incidents from happening in the first place. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. Lots of easily accessible applications have flourished over the last years in enabling the creation of fake content such as fake news, fake videos, or fake conversations. While we often discuss the social and political damages these technologies can cause, can they also harm businesses? Do you have in mind some examples of maybe companies armed by these and the way they solved such problem? The technology that's that's used to create this synthetic media is being driven 
by you know the entertainment industry, for example, which would love to be in a position to create content without having to rely on actors and actresses. You see a lot of interest in retail, so you know the, the technology could enable um, someone to virtually try on clothes um, in the comfort of their home. So there, so there, there are lots of positive applications, and and I think companies would be wise to think through, you know, not not just how do we defend ourselves against malicious uses, but actually looking at this technology as you know potential opportunities depending on what sector they're in. And of course, you know, the the risks of the technology are are significant. The risks of misuse, in particular, one area that uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about is the use of this stuff in civil discourse, in, in political campaigns, in uh, policy debates to essentially put words, literally put words in the mouth of a politician to yes. um, distort mm-hmm. events that happened uh, or try to create a fake alternative uh, renderings of, you know, newsworthy incidents. The the social media companies are primary platforms for where that kind of content would, would spread to, to wide audiences. Accordingly, the, you know, the companies, they, they have a set of responsibilities to try to promote responsible use of their platforms and prevent the platforms from from being used in such malicious ways. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, there is no technological silver bullet to this problem because of the, the nature of the underlying technology. In essence, you know, these are machine learning generated. This content is machine learning generated. And once a, a tell is discovered that can tip a defender off that content is fake, the authors of the, the fake content can go back and retrain the machine learning algorithm to essentially remedy that, that tell. And so as one example, um, last year, there was some research that came out uh, supported by DARPA, the, the U.S. Defense Department's research agency, that discovered that one tell was that, that people in deep fakes, the way they blink their eyes is a little unusual. And that you could, you know, look for anomalies in how people blink their eyes in, in fake content as a way to identify it. Well, then what happens is um, once once that's known, the authors of the content they just go back and they retrain their algorithms to just make. Of course. More, more, uh, and so, from my my perspective, the lad that lack of a technological silver bullet means that there there are lots of different um, policy layers to this. And I, I like to sort of start with if um, political leaders. And thought leaders come to the conclusion that using this this type of technology for malicious purposes is okay in civic discourse. Then no amount of technological interventions by the platforms or anyone else will have will have an impact. Uh, it becomes normal, right, and accepted. So that's to me is is a big driver. And then I think, and that, that that's obviously you know an application that has a lot of people concerned. But there are also applications of this that that have less to do with the quality of civic discourse and more. The reputations of companies, of individuals in the marketplace, and so you know you could imagine, for example, all sorts of you know, if you sort of put your evil genius uh, thinking cap on, all the creative ways that someone who wanted to malign a brand or uh, an individual could 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 go about it with this technology. Um, as far as defensive strategies go, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, to the, for for a company, you know, the, the threat they face is probably going, going to be reputational. And when you sort of think about why why would a you know a bad actor create content that attacks a company, you know, it's likely to try to tarnish their brand. And so having a, a plan in place in advance for responding to contingencies like this, you know, companies have rapid reaction 
sophisticated companies have rapid reaction capabilities already. Sometimes they, you know, they, they, they have communications teams. Those communications teams have outside people they hire to help them in crisis communications. Is there any reason to be optimistic? So, I, I, mean, I mean, the best reason to be, I think there, there are two reasons to be optimistic. One is that, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you know, the, the, there's sort of a, a mutual assured destruction uh, logic potentially to certainly at least how politicians and others in civil discourse might use this technology, which is, you know, push um, people on this. You know, no, no one wants to debate important issues in an environment where um, it's impossible to get the ground truth, at least in the United States. But for politicians, it's, it, I mean, can't, be, being a politician is already, you know, it takes a special kind of person to sort of, you know, put up with the constant criticism, the scrutiny, and this would just make it even worse. I, I think there is some self-interest among um, the different actors at leadership levels in civic discourse for not allowing this to get out of hand. Now, how, now how strong that incentive is, I, I think is, I don't, I don't think we know yet, but I think there is an incentive there. You know, there, there's going to be a sort of constant kind of technological arms race between uh, people who produce this stuff, the malicious content, and uh, techniques to d detect it. And in that respect, it you know, it'll look a lot like how we deal with 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 cyber threats more broadly. I mean, you know, where there's just kind of constant interplay of, between offense and defense, and it you know, it really puts a premium on being adaptive um, to threats of you know having you know, real management focus and attention on, you know, managing these threats, being nimble, exercising, you know, through scenario exercises. And um, that's probably the best we can do. The 2016 electoral campaign in the U.S. shed light on some contested harvesting and micro-targeting techniques used for political advertising purposes. We are, of course, referring to the Cambridge Analytica Facebook scandal here. Uh, are there any new technology, technique, or data use, we should be on the watch for during the the coming presidential campaign in the U.S. Do you believe cybersecurity should be a more important item on the candidate's political agenda, and how so? Yeah, I, I certainly do, and I think that for both the candidates themselves, they are targets. There are no, there's no shortage of of malicious actors who would love to break into the campaigns of you know, the different candidates out there. Um, this was, we, we know this from 2016, um, when the Russians broke into uh, the DNC uh, servers. The security of the campaign versus the security, you know, of, of the campaign infrastructure is important, is one piece. There's also this, you know, the sort of the security of the broader election infrastructure. So um, voter registration databases, uh, voting machines themselves are all, you know, attack surfaces. They're all uh, targets. And I don't think we've done enough yet to, to secure those, um, to get them where we need to be. You know, there are a lot of reasons, uh, for why that's the case still and, and why it's hard. But suffice it to say, you know, it comes back to incentives. I, I think the incentives have been not aligned sufficiently with, um, with security. And then, you know, in terms of, of, of technologies, I'm sure we'll see, um, you know, more bots. We'll see, um, they'll probably be smarter bots in the sense that they're harder to detect and they seem more lifelike. We'll, so we'll almost certainly see, uh, synthetic content. But to me, what, what perhaps worries me most is this, this normalization of this, these types of, of, um, techniques in our domestic political discourse. 
it's one thing, you know, if the purveyors are, you know, Russian, for example. But what happens when those same the, te- the techniques that the Russians used in 2016 become mainstream in the way that politics is done domestically? <clears throat> it, it presents you know, a whole different set of challenges. And again, I think if this type of activity becomes normalized, then no amount of technological intervention um, will be enough to protect us. And now, Andy, I have a few rapid-fire questions for you. Uh, could you name a word that would summarize the last decade and the one you expect for the decade that is just beginning? That's a great question. I think the you know so the, the word I would use for the past decade is uh, about naivete. Many of us in in the policy world and and also in, in technology were naive about the the cost benefit calculus for digital technologies. I think we were much too optimistic about the benefits being super high and the costs being relatively low. Uh, and so I think um, that kind of gets me to the, the next 10 years, which is, I think, call it uh, problem solving. That's, that's a hyphened word, so I'll count that as, as one word. Uh, we, we know what the, the last 10 years of naive tape exposed for us is, are a lot of problems that we need to get our heads around and come up with policy solutions for. And so I think the next 10 years, we'll see the, the sort of the policy and regulatory foundations for how we deal with digital technologies for decades to come get set. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Probably to be nice. The last book you read? I, I'm a nerd, so I'm going to say, um, I just, I'm blanking on the title, but the author is uh, Janet Abate. It was a history of the internet um, that, that came out in about 2003, I think. What would you have liked to invent or to create? Well, I guess if, if the idea is... If one motivation is, you know, uh, financial, then it would have been nice to have been invented Google. <laughs> But I think, you know, I think less self-interested. I think we're we're entering a remarkable phase of innovation in biology. There are going to be a lot of inventions um, in the coming years that that could have a huge impact, positive impact on human health and, and longevity. Uh, for example, cures for Alzheimer's and, and different cancers. Okay, so to come. Thank you very much, Andy. My pleasure. My guest today was Andy Grotto, a William J. Perry International Security Fellow at the Cyber Policy Center and a Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. Thank you for listening to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for new episodes. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and share it. We are always looking for new people to discover brand and new. And to learn more about INTA, its resources and events, please visit www.inta.org.